0: You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. assurance of grace and salvation, it follows naturally from chapter 17, which you remember last week was perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere, and perhaps from the heavenly perspective, we can say that they will be preserved. So we are preserved, we do persevere, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because it's God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So assurance, much of the chapter that we're looking at is framed in response to both Roman Catholic and Arminian teaching. They were dealing with these things during the assembly. Rome denies that it's possible for anybody in this life to attain to assurance. The best you can do is attain to a probable persuasion. I am probably going to heaven. And that's too bad, because um, it makes the Christian life more difficult, if not impossible. Because they say, unless one is given extraordinary revelation, they can never be sure and must walk the treadmill. Those are my words. I think it is a treadmill. You have to keep working, working, working. Never really being sure of God's everlasting love for you. So they would deny the idea that there would be assurance of salvation. The Armenian teaching denies the certainty of the saints perseverance. As perhaps Pastor Pylon mentioned last week, therefore because we don't know if we are going to persevere, you cannot obtain assurance. There's no assurance. It depends on you. If you relinquish your hold on Christ, you're lost. No person can attain greater certainty than this. If you persevere to the end, you'll be saved. And that's a big if for a fallible, weak, imperfect human being. So the confession comes along and teaches that believers, in using the ordinary means of salvation, the things that God gives us, the word, the sacraments, prayer, and so forth, as we use these things, we can be infallibly assured of our salvation. Now, as we'll find, this isn't always the same in all people, nor is it the same in one person, different seasons of life. But this is possible, according to the confession. It's not a mere conjecture, it's not just probable persuasion, it is an absolute certainty about one's state and grace. That's a wonderful thing, and it's a gift. Peter exhorts all Christians to be more diligent in confirming their calling and election. So that's a wonderful exhortation, and he wouldn't give it if it wasn't possible. This does imply that all believers have the means by which to gain the assurance of grace and salvation. We'll talk about that. It's not mechanical. Obviously, God is sovereign and the Spirit's involved. But he does promise to bless the ordinary means. This is an act of faith. We always say this, and somebody says, well, it's just so ordinary. But yes, God said he would bless, for example, the preaching of his word. Well, as an act of faith, I'll take him at his word. I'll show up and listen to the preaching of the word, and he'll bless it. That's what he said. It is ordinary because it's regular. But it's not ordinary in the sense that there's nothing supernatural about it. The Spirit attends his word. That's what he said. And we take him at his word. That's an act of faith. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Be earnest about this. This is important for your comfort as a Christian. As we'll argue, the confession says that this assurance is not of the essence of faith. You don't have to have it to be a Christian, okay, but we're exhorted to seek it. It's very important for our comfort. It's of the utmost importance to distinguish between true and false assurance because there's much at stake. If you have a false security, you'll be tragically surprised on the day of judgment. Any questions about that right there? The preliminary remarks. Any comments? Okay. Good. So, section one, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and the estate of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish? That's why there's a lot at stake. <clears throat> The blessing of assurance is the privilege of believers who alone can rejoice in salvation. There are some unbelievers hidden from our eyes who have a false hope or a carnal presumption who deceive themselves that they've been saved. And therefore, they are not led to seek any further. Unbelievers can be deceived about the state of their souls, about the favor of God. They have a natural desire for happiness. All people do. We all want to be happy. But they're blind to their true condition. They may even be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. That's why it's so important. The heart, we're told, is deceitful. It can lead a person into a dangerously false sense of security. Um, It even goes on, Jeremiah says, it's deceitful above all else. And it's terminally ill, desperately wicked. So that's why when Oprah says, follow your heart, don't listen to her. That's not right. We govern our hearts. We inform our conscience. We are governed by the word of God. The Pharisee was confident that everything was well with his soul. But he did not go down to his house justified. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these other men, like this tax gatherer. And it was the tax gatherer who went down to his house justified. He had a false sense of security because he trusted in his religion. False hopes, carnal presumptions are built upon a foundation of sand. It will be disappointed. Remember Bildad, he said, the hope of the godless shall perish. They do have a hope. That's what's interesting. They do have a hope. They don't walk around the world hopeless. The problem is their hope is false. His confidence is severed. His trust is a spider's web, which is easily wiped away. Proverbs 11, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. Or one more time, you are doing the works your father did, Jesus said. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said in response, you are of your father, the devil. False security, carnal presumption. So a lot is at stake. It's a very important doctrine. Any comments or questions, at least at this point? I sort of have one. Sure. God while he's in purgatory is that because they they do believe they, they are working out their own salvation? Well, they have the Roman Catholic teaching has a false doctrine of purgatory that following death there is opportunity for somebody to repent for the works of supererogation and the merit of super saints to be given to those in that state. But the Bible teaches there are, there are only two places in the intermediate state. He's wrong, sadly. And for somebody to teach that, he will be held to a higher standard. We're told the teachers will be judged more strictly for the reason that people trust their teaching, right? So they would say and i did this i had this conversation with a friend of mine who became a roman catholic from the reformed presbyterian tradition he said well once i gave up sola scriptura everything goes right because you have the pope the cardinals the councils everything it's all on the same level so if you can't find it in scripture you can find it in the pope's declarations he speaks ex cathedra from the chair but there's only there are only two places following death. That's it. So this is why it's important to seek earnestly our assurance while we have our opportunity in life. But that doesn't mean if you don't have assurance, as we'll find, if you struggle with doubts, that doesn't mean you're not a believer. I don't want to give the false impression right now. Okay? Oops. So we continue with section one. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace, and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So there we have it. It is possible. The confession is clear in its teaching. There are two prerequisites, however, that are necessary if I'm going to have assurance of my salvation. And the confession points this out. Number one, you must truly believe in Jesus Christ and love him in sincerity. You got to be a Christian. (laughs) It might seem too simple to point out, but it's true. You have to be a sincere Christian. I write these things, says John, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You believe in the Son of God. There is a sincere trust in Him. And, of course, that's a gift. God has given you this gift of faith. So prerequisite number one, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Number two, you must be endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him. You can't say to yourself, well, I decided 10 years ago at a Billy Graham concert, or a Billy Graham Crusade, thank you, not concert, crusade. And therefore, I'm in. No, you're endeavoring daily to walk in all good conscience before God. And by this, we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Not perfectly, but sincerely. You're sincerely trying. You're going to fail. I'm going to sin. I'm going to repent. But that's a sincere attempt to walk on all good conscience before God. So those two prerequisites, if you have those, then it's possible to obtain the, the blessing of assurance. And you can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Job, remember him? I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he'll stand upon the earth, and I'll see him in my flesh. He had assurance. In the midst of his suffering, he had assurance. Paul, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Your ESV says what he's entrusted to me. It's either way. I'm convinced that it's what I've entrusted to him. He entrusted his soul to Christ, the thing that's most important to him. You can gain the whole world, but if you forfeit your soul... You've lost it all. So I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what I've entrusted to him. They had insurance, So it's possible to be assured. Any questions or comments on section one? What a blessing it is to have assurance. Section two, it goes on to say, This certainty, and it points out, is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion. Contra, Roman Catholic teaching, grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. I think sometimes we misunderstand the word infallible because we've associated it so much with Scripture, that Scripture is infallible. It does not err, and that's true. But infallible can be broader than that. <clears throat> it can mean that, that your salvation is certain. You will be saved. That's an infallible truth. And that's what we're talking about here. It's not, Scripture is not content with right assurance. Yeah, that's a biblical, uh, that is in accord with Scripture, but it speaks of the full assurance, the infallible assurance, the overflowing joy and the hope that we will be with Christ in eternity. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that. And if Paul can say it, you can say it. Don't think because he's an apostle, his Christianity is different. If he can say it, we can say it. The sincere Christian's infallible assurance of salvation is founded upon three things. It's based upon three things. Number one, as the confession points out, it's founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. God speaks truth. He does not lie. He would deny himself if he lied. So everything he's revealed in that wonderful sacred book is true. And if you trust his promise... That's the first leg of the three legs of assurance. It's what Hebrews calls, I think, the assurance of faith. I take God at his word. Regardless of what happens in my life, he said it, I believe it, that settles it. So that's number one. Number two, it's founded upon the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made. And this is what John points out in his first epistle. Paul talks about it in Galatians 5. By this we know that we've come to know him if who keep his commandments. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So righteousness, love, and belief. Those are some of the graces that the Spirit Enables us to discern in ourselves, that's evidence, that there is assurance that we have salvation and we can be assured. So you trust in the promises. You discern the evidence of grace in your life. And then number three. Founded upon the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we're sealed to the day of redemption. He testifies that we are children. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Those three things, faith, by faith grounded upon the truth of God's promises, the Spirit enabling us to discern in ourselves the graces to which the promises are made, and the Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we're children of God. Any question on any of that? Those three grounds or... Okay. People misunderstand, I think, or have a hard time grasping what it means for the Spirit to testify. So let's talk a little bit about that. Some understand it as a reference to the Spirit's inward and immediate revelation, as if the Spirit's in your heart speaking to you, you're a child, you're a child, you're a child. That's not what he's talking about. That's not it. They claim that God somehow inwardly speaks to the believer, tells him that he's his child. I wish that were true, but that's not what, they're, what they mean by it. The confession, it's talking about the Spirit testifying, and he does so by means of the effects produced by him in our hearts. Now, this is more than discerning the evidence of grace. The word witness, if we look at it in Scripture, often signifies the holding forth of evidence to prove something true. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So here, the signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts that he gave are not assertions, but they're proofs. Okay, They're not God speaking, but they're proofs of the truth of the gospel. Bear with me. Jesus says, The works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders. So he is giving proofs that the gospel was true and that the gospel messengers were legitimate. So the indwelling spirit of adoption leads and disposes you and I to behave toward God as a father. Abba. Father. He enables us to say that in good conscience. He testifies then to our adoption by bringing to light through his influence on the soul the evidence of sonship. He implants within us the traits of Christ himself, who was God's son, and speaks through the word about these traits. Here's the word of God. This is who Jesus is, the Son of God. This is what a child of God looks like. And I'm telling you, these are in you. He's bearing witness that that's in you. These aren't the graces like the fruits of the Spirit that we see. This is him bearing witness by and with the word in your heart that you're a child of God. And you can say, Abba, Father. It feels right. And it is right. He is your father, and he loves you far more than any earthly father ever could. With the eye of faith, you understand the nature of the traits of a child of God, and you see them implanted in your soul, and he is testifying to you that you are God's child. So it's not this mystical, immediate uh, testimony that we hear within our psyche, it's The Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in your heart that you in good conscience can call out to God, Abba, Father. That's a wonderful thing. So by faith grounded upon the promise, by the Spirit enabling us to discern in our lives those fruits to which the promises of God are made, and by the Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we're children of God, we can be assured that we're saved. What a blessing. Any comments or questions? Julia? Um, What I'm hearing you say is that basically God changes our desires. He changes our desires. He changes our actions. He changes our will. He changes our hearts in different ways. And it's slow. It's over time. It's not always like, poof, poof, I'm changed. But then when we read the Bible, and we read about, you know, say, for example, forgiveness, we realize, wow, I've actually really grown in this area. Now yeah, Jesus has been doing this work in me, and I didn't even realize it. Or, oh, I've been seeing him do that. And that, yeah, that, that makes sense. That sounds like what I'm experiencing. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's a big part of it, sure. Yeah. That's right. Okay. I mean, the change happens instantaneously. <clears throat> we're regenerated, we're justified in a moment of, t- well, not even a moment, instantaneously, but. The implications of that radical change, the supernatural change, take place over life, like you said. You grow in your appreciation of God's forgiveness. Kelly was just mentioning that this morning. She was talking to Nate about a sermon at the uh, ordination service, and she said, you know, it's a wonderful thing to think that all my sins, past, present, future, they're all covered. And it was a wonderful reminder from Nate. And yes, and we grow in our appreciation. That's all part of it. The, God's promise, you are forgiven. And that's wonderfully received when you become a new Christian, but we grow in the depth of our understanding over time, as Julia mentioned. John? Um, I could also see this, even if I didn't hear a voice saying, you were adopted as sons, it could still just resonate empty in me. Hearing, even hearing a voice, unless there's a the change and transformation in a person, Right. If you hear voices, let's counsel together. <laughs> but but you make a good point. You make a good point. And that's what I think it's a good point to bring up because you we have no reason to expect God to speak to us that way. And if we do hear a voice and I was kind of serious, let's talk. Because the devil will disguise himself as an angel of light and he'll do stuff like that. And all sorts of religious people are following those voices you know. And I was taught as a brand new charismatic Christian that that's what I need to do. And I wasn't directed back to God's infallible Word. That's where God has spoken to us. We have no reason to think that God is ever going to speak to us any further than His Word. And in these last days, He's spoken to us in His Son, and we meet His Son in the Word. So, yeah, I didn't mean to be humorous at your expense, but... Yeah. I was 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 thinking the exact same thing as also the charismatic background. That even seek, like, feeling like, oh, I want to seek after having that visceral experience of hearing God speak. Right, right. Even that visceral experience of, even if He did give that experience, that wouldn't necessarily bring Mm. us, that wouldn't, just hearing a voice doesn't transform our hearts, which is what we're really after. Absolutely. Having God transform us into His image. You're right. Well, doesn't Peter even say, look, hey, we saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. <clears throat> what, does it, anything any better than that? And he says, yes, we have the Word of God. It's better than seeing Jesus transfigured. That's incredible. So we need to be people of the book. And if you're a person of the book, you can obtain assurance of salvation. Don? Yeah, you just said, my spirit uh, will... Of your spirit. Are there two spirits? Or what, were you, what were you addressing that? Um, well, the Spirit of God will bear witness with our spirits, our souls. Okay. Yeah. It, as I understand it, soul and spirit can be used interchangeably. Okay. And yeah, that's what I was talking about. It's non essential, section three. This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. Now the confession is allowing for the fact that not all believers, nor at all times, have this assurance. Mm -hmm. Roman Catholic teaching equated faith, you'll remember, with mere assent. Not trust, assent. So no possibility of assurance. Yep, I believe that God's there. I believe Jesus lived and died but it doesn't equate the faith with, I trust, receive, rest upon Christ. They're equating faith with assent. As long as you follow the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, take the bread, the wafer, you're in. The Reformers, I think, one, in reaction to this, two, because their lives were at stake. They had to be assured because they had Swords to their throats, guns to their heads. They could die any moment. The reformers came along, Calvin, Knox, and so forth. They equated faith with assurance. So, like, if you're not assured, well, I question whether you're a Christian. And I think in that day and age, in their era, it was a very important thing to be confident because your life was at stake. So, by implication, they made it essential to salvation hundred years later, roughly, the Westminster Divines come along, and with the advantage of time and reflection and so forth, they say that assurance is important, but it's not necessary, which is good news to believers, because sometimes we struggle. We have doubts. Isaiah says, "'Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant?' Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now notice, he's talking to those who fear the Lord, love Jesus, who obey the voice of his servant, endeavor to walk in all good conscience, right? The two prerequisites. These are believers. But they're walking in darkness. They have no light. So it's a very difficult season for these believers. And Isaiah is telling them, Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on your God. Don't, don't interpret providence in any other way but by the word. Providence may seem like God is against you. The Bible said he's for you. You trust the Bible, not providence. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He acknowledges that he struggles. So our faith is built upon inspired testimony, the promises of God, but no scripture expressly declares that I'm saved. I will not find in the Bible, Scott is saved. Uh, Forefathers have talked about a sacred uh, syllogism. Major premise, all who trust in Christ are saved. Minor premise, I trust in Christ. Conclusion, therefore I'm saved, right? There's your sacred syllogism. So it's an inference that we draw from Scripture and the other pillars that we talked about. As a believer, I may often be perplexed with doubts and fears about my own personal salvation. Each one of us has unbelief and other corruptions lingering within, and sometimes these prevail for whatever reason. We're going to talk about some of the reasons for that. But if saving faith exists in the soul, then the evidence of faith are present to some degree. So let's talk about the confession and some of the things that might take away or hinder being enabled by the Spirit. I'm sorry, we'll have to wait for a second, section 4, but this is important. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. And therefore it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence, it should be diligence, to make his calling and election sure. So it's obtained by reflection and reasoning as we recognize the Spirit's work in the soul. There is an element of reflection here. Saving faith looks to Christ. Assurance looks inside. So that's one of the reasons why it's not necessary. You can look to Christ and never look inside and trust in your Savior. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, the object of faith. I sincerely believe in the Son, the subjective experience of faith. Therefore, I'm saved and have eternal life, the inference and essence of assurance. There's your sacred syllogism. You don't need an audible voice. John, thank you for that statement, because we don't need that. He's right. You need the blessing of Christ and the work of the Spirit in the ordinary means. Remember, the Spirit works in them, and Christ blessed them. When he ascended on high, he raised his hands and gave the blessing to the entire New Testament church, a benediction that lasts throughout the New Testament era. And obtaining assurance of salvation is not only a grace, but a duty, as the confession points out. We can't sit on our laurels. It doesn't lead to negligence, as some have accused us of, but to peace and joy and love and gratitude and obedience. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. When God enlarges my heart with joy, the joy of salvation, that impels me to obey him. So any questions on non-essential? It's not necessary, but it is a duty. Okay? Well, then let's look. It can be lost. Not salvation, but assurance. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in diverse ways shaken, diminished, intermitted. True believers remember from chapter 17 when Pastor Pilon was teaching, they can fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. David with Bathsheba. But the elect can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. You cannot fall away if you're a true believer. So the assurance which rests largely upon subjective experience can be shaken, diminished, intermitted, interrupted, How? By negligence in preserving it. This is a gift. If God gives me the gift of assurance, shouldn't I try to protect and preserve this treasure? The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. It's an encouragement to be diligent in the use of the ordinary means. So it can be lost by negligence. Assurance can be lost by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the Spirit of God. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice, says says David. And of course, I think most of us, if not all of us, have experienced this. If we've struggled with sin at a particular week, assurance wanes. Um, So sin is that which destroys Assurance It evaporates, which is one of the incentives to resist temptation at all costs. By negligence, by sinning, by some sudden or vehement temptation, uh, the devil knows exactly our weaknesses, our propensities, and he's not afraid to capitalize upon them. God left Hezekiah to himself, you remember, in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. So it's as if God withdrew his restraining grace for a time, and Hezekiah proudly showed the envoys all of his treasures. And it was pride. When left to himself, this vehement temptation came, and his pride rose up. So it can be lost by some temptation, Or, and probably the most mysterious of all, God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. For reasons known only to him, sometimes he'll take us through a valley of darkness. Um, It may be to strengthen us. It may be to chastise us. It can be for any number of reasons. God is sovereign. But as Isaiah 50.10 points out, when he does this, or as the forefathers would say, desertions, when he does this, trust in the name of the Lord your God and rely upon him. Job, he had no idea what was going on. We can see behind the curtain, he had no idea. If he were to interpret providence as his friends did, God has forsaken you. John, Jim? Jim? You talk about going through this valley of darkness. It reminded me of Bunyan, when he got out of prison, wrote a little book entitled uh, I Am the Chief of Sinners. And he details years uh, of going through this period of doubting his salvation. And he kept looking for outward signs that he was saved. And he finally comes to the conclusion as you just mentioned, and as this, this goes through in some detail, that it's all there in Scripture. And and when he realized that, he was greatly encouraged because he could see in Scripture his salvation. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's, sometimes when we go through that valley of darkness, uh, it, it's, it's interesting to to walk with other believers who have experienced the same thing. That's right. And that's why I think that the gray hairs are so important in a church, right? Because the senior statesmen, the seasoned Christians, have walked through some of those valleys, and they can encourage younger ones, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, God's there with you. Trust in His Word and His promise. William Cooper... <clears throat> He wrote, I think, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I think that was his, one of his. He, he was uh, melancholy, struggled with depression severely. I think he was friends with uh, John Newton. I could be wrong on that. But anyway, he would constantly uh, consult with his friends who were pastors, and they would always be pointing him back to the promises of God. And he had to look to the promises. He had, he had nothing in himself. He struggled. I don't, I don't even know if he ever had assurance. But he was always directed to the promises, always t- told to look to Christ. And as far as we know, he died as a saint. So, Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived And by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Wonderful promise. We might forfeit our assurance, but we're never destitute of grace, faith, and love. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. That's a promise that you can count on. David lost his assurance by his sin with Bathsheba. Peter lost his assurance by his denial of Christ. David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Well, that's losing assurance, if you ask me. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, and he went out and wept bitterly. <clears throat> Hodges right, Full assurance may be strengthened when weakened and recovered when lost, so we find, <clears throat> Excuse me. David saying, <clears throat> I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Assurance restored. Peter said to the, him the third time, Simon said of John, or Jesus said, Do you love me? Peter was grieved, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Restored. So it can be lost, it can be revived, it can be restored. And God is a gracious God, and He'll do that for His children. Any final comments or questions that you have, Nate? Do you think uh, I've always struggled with this one because I feel like I uh, I learned so much about assurance from young believers, like I mean even young children uh, who have a simple faith that is just assured, and then also older folks who've gone through a lot of stuff, and uh, or, you know, testimonies in and of their own, their own faith still existing uh, of God's assurance. And so it's always, I've wanted to tie assurance to maturity, uh, Christian maturity, but I don't know if that's necessarily true. Well, it can be. Maturity helps, but I wouldn't tie it to it. Yeah. Because like you say, a child can have assurance, and God is gracious with children. It's like a brand new convert. When I was a brand new convert, I didn't have any doubts. I was in the, the glow of the initial honeymoon, right? It was awesome. And God was gracious to give me that, but he didn't leave me there. I have to learn to walk on my own, to walk through the valley of darkness, to trust in him no matter what, so he didn't leave me there. And he won't leave a child there, but he will give a child assurance. And it's like a, that's I mean that's encouraging to me because it's it's maturity isn't something that we can like create through more study. Right. That can help. But so much of it is like the simple belief in what you can Yeah, and it's experience I and mean, it does come over time. Yeah. I mean so, I, well, I wouldn't say a child's mature, yeah. Um, the assurance that a child has, it's, it can be infallible, but I would not say it's as deep as the assurance that an adult would have. So, And I think the confession would say that, because a child's understanding of the promises of God are very simple. But they're so trusting, God makes them that way, that they just believe it. You know. but, but is there a thing such as like partial assurance? Well, it's degrees. I think it's degrees. I wouldn't say like you have half of it, <laughs> but your assurance may ebb and flow. You know, um, it's something that grows. So I look at it as degrees. I think the confession would allow that understanding. I believe, help my unbelief. You know, there is a, an element of assurance in that, but it's not. It's not full. It's not um, the fullness that is exhorted in Hebrews. Put it that way. I don't think it's like you have it or you don't. I guess is what I'm saying. I don't look at it that way. Because there are seasons that we go through. When when you refer to the full assurance, is it something where you're you're analyzing yourself? Where like if you ask somebody else to look in your life or... What about you versus you like yourself. Is there a difference in understanding the full assurance that... I think so. I think somebody else can tell you. They told Cal Cooper, hey, I see evidence, and he wouldn't believe him. He didn't see it. So I think it's you looking and being enabled by the Spirit to discern those graces and to, be, to hear through the Word his testimony that that's a child, and I see that in you. But, but the confession has been accused of leading people to be navel-gazers, right? Large in this chapter, like, oh, I'm, also, I'm so consumed with myself, when in fact, we look to Christ. So that first leg, by faith grounded upon the truth of God's promises, so important to keep our eyes on Christ. We don't become navel-gazers, we don't just become consumed with looking everywhere in our lives for these evidences, you know. But it is important to have self-examination, there's a balance. Mary Alice? I think that's the crux of the situation right there. The more mature Christian realizes, don't look at yourself, look at him. That's the growth of maturity, I think, right there, is the dependence upon his work and not our understanding, or our work, or our self-evaluation. You know, we can get too wrapped up in us. We can. Instead of just putting it all right there, on him and him. Yeah, no, I think it's very important to be reminded to always look to Christ. That's right. Well, with that reminder, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the great blessing of salvation. And not only so, but you also give us the gift and the opportunity of assurance of that salvation. We pray that you will help us and enable us to grow in our understanding of this truth, and in our own assurance of eternal life. Please prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.